We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 133 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I am Trevor, the Iron Fist. I have two co-hosts with me this evening. First up is Scott, the Velvet Glove. Welcome aboard, Scott. G'day, Trevor. I'm happy to be here, happy to be alive. Excellent. And Paul, the 12th man, welcome aboard again. Thank you. I'm the 12th man. I'm secular and I'm here. Ready, willing and able. Ready, willing and more than able, I hope. Very good. So, dear listener, uh, we've had a few new um, people come on board and listen to the podcast of late, and hopefully there's a few new people for this particular podcast. Just to give you an idea, we started off as a very, very sort of secular, religious-focused podcast, and we certainly still are to an extent. We've branched more into politics and changes in society, what's going on news-wise in the world, concentrating on Australia, but... Uh, there's some interesting things happening overseas, particularly in uh, Trump land. So we'll talk about that, and there'll always be a good examination of what religious nutters are up to in the world and what chaos or other things they're causing. So that's what a general or a normal podcast uh, sounds like or will sound like, and hopefully that's something that you're looking forward to. So we've got a range of topics, and the first one that we're going to kick off with is, no surprise, once again, the submission to the Ruddock panel about religious freedom. And dear listener, Scott, we, we started this podcast two and a half years ago with the idea mm. of promoting ideas in competition to the theocracy that, that's trying to be imposed on this country. Exactly. And, yeah. um, you know, just trying to do our little bit to build up a resistance, if you like, and... We scored a win this week, Scott, because I got an email from a listener who sent me a message saying, actually, it was an email or was it a message? I can't remember. I think it was a message on Facebook anyway. Saying, um, love your show. I really enjoy it. I've been inspired by a few of the ideas. I've written a submission to the Ruddock panel. Wouldn't mind if you could just cast your eye over it and just make some comments. So I thought, oh, well, fair enough. It'll probably just be a one or two page little blurb about it. Happy to do so. Well, I opened it up and it was a 13 page document to start with. And after reading about the first five lines, I was thinking to myself, wow, who has written <laughs> this? Like, where did this come from? So I've quickly then. Um, gone straight to the end of the document and the author is Dean Stratton and a Google search reveals that he's a barrister at the New South Wales Bar uh, with a first class honours degree in law and a university medal to his credit. And uh, Dean, I guess you're listening to this podcast, well done mate, that is the most beautiful 13 pages of of analysis of religious freedom in Australia, what's going on and what should be going on. And um, I immediately sent a message to Scott and Paul saying that we've come of age when somebody of your calibre is prepared to contribute <laughs> something to this podcast. So um, we're really, really excited to get it, Dean. Thank you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it was a very Dean, it was impressive a, piece of work. Mm. It was exceptional, wasn't it? It was really well done. Mm. So I've got nothing more to say other than... Very good. Thank you, Dean. So that Dean was worried that nobody would ever read it, that it was going really? to go to the panel and that it would just get lost well, in the system. He, he's probably right that they're not going to read it because it's not going to come from the ACL. But um, it should be read. Mm. It really should be read. It is very powerful. It, um, If you follow through, you've got no choice but to conclude that religious freedom is intact in Australia and that's it. Yes, and is dominating when it shouldn't. Um, mm, to the point exactly. Well. Yeah. Mm. So I uh, I passed it on to the Rationalist Society, um, and to Brian Morris um, at the National Secular Lobby, and they've sort of handed it on to their mates and have discussed it and all the rest of it. So it has got around, and lots of people have read it. So just to give you an exa- an example, I'll run through it a little bit. Second paragraph. I'll just read. There are no laws restricting freedom of religion in Australia. Australians are free to embrace and express any faith, and 60% of them do. There are no laws establishing or prohibiting any religion or imposing any religious test for public office. Senior federal politicians speak openly of their faith, and religious believers are overrepresented in federal parliament. Former New South Wales Premier Baird declared that his Christian faith was the most important thing to him and that he no longer separated it from politics. Religious lobbyists receive more media time than their secular counterparts. Religious freedom is clearly alive and well in Australia. Now, that's all really good. Dear listener, there are seven footnotes associated with that one paragraph, referencing either articles or case law or stuff from the Bureau of Statistics or whatever. So, to you know, basically... That's an eight-line paragraph and there were seven footnotes. So it's incredibly well-researched and it's going to be a really valuable resource for secularists down the track, I think. So um, mm. You'd um, have to ask if, if they could, you know, in, in good conscience, ignore a document like that. You know, I don't know. The, How they operate. Well, it, it, would make you, it would make you hope that they don't. You'd hope that they don't ignore a document like this. It's only 13 pages, whereas there was 100-odd pages from one of the Christian groups that went down there. Yeah. But you would imagine that surely someone would read it. Yes, I suppose and, as secularists. And if someone... If, Go ahead, Scott. Sorry, Scott, you just cut out then. Could you say that again? No, sorry. I was just saying, you know, someone should be reading it and then they'd put their hand up afterwards and say to them, look, this is quite good. I think you should read it. Hmm. My suspicion is that because most the panel appears to be dominated those with an, uh, a sort of a religious bent, that they're specifically looking for things that favour their point of view. And um, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think they couldn't just pass over or ignore a document like that. It was a very, I mean, uh, compared to some others, it was a very serious submission and very professionally done. Mm. Mm. There are some really does members sit. on that panel, so I wouldn't call Ruddock or Father Brennan independent, but there was a, quite a learned sort of legal person on there, oh. so that'll be some good ammunition for them. You know, it's, uh, it, we compare that to Trevor's submission, and it's they're just yeah. poles apart, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what? that's the beauty of it in that, like... If everybody does their own thing their own way, then certain things strike a chord with people a certain way. So, for example, 
dare I say it, but somebody like um, uh, Father Brennan or Raddock might sort of look at Dean's submission and just go, oh, that's just a load of hogwash, I don't care anyway. Mm. But somebody might look at my submission and go, you know what, that, that guy, Trevor, might just start up a Satanist group and yeah. they, they could do what they're planning, what he's saying they're doing. Like the in Satanic Temple is doing that in America and it, it could be more potent than, than Dean's for some people. It depends on your audience. Or you might push yeah, them that's, uh, to, to, you know, work extra hard to enforce their, their religious um, doctrines in, in law. Yeah, because Dean makes the very good case for why religions, you know, are privileged and have all these special privileges that they're under calling freedom. Um, and my argument was kind of, well, I'll let you win religious groups on that. You can have all your privileges, but... I want them too for my yes. for my Satanist group, and so even if you win on that score, uh, you still have issues to deal with. So yes. it's in my defence. So I mean, as I, I guess, what we suspect is that it's not a a, a panel to um, promote religious freedom, but to promote Christian freedom. Well, certainly two of the members. And, and mainstream Christian freedom, not any kind of Christian freedom. In, in fact, three of the members. Well, a third member was a sort of a pro-Islam sort of character. Oh, really? That. Yes. Oh, okay. Aroni, I think his name was. Mm. Yeah. So, anyway, good ammunition, Dean, for the um, secular movement. And, dear listener, if you are at all interested in this topic, then it's required reading and there's a link to it on our website. So... Um, read that at your leisure. Now, just you know, we've got to, you've got to know the enemy and see what they're up to. And uh, <laughs> before we get on to what's happened with Lyle Shelton, I'll just talk about their submissions. So, on the ACL website, they have um, basically said to their members, "Here are fourteen points that you could address when you are making your submission." And we encourage you to sort of just do it in your own words, but, but here are 14 points. Dear listener, of the 14 points that they've listed, 12 of them are related to marriage. They are just obsessed with they are, the marriage issue. They are completely obsessed with it and they are flogging a dead horse. You know, I, I think we said at the time that they weren't going to give up on it, and it's true that they're not going to give up on it because they've. It is not. So, it's you know. So I'll, I'll quickly yeah, run through it, some. The, the only two, there, there were two that didn't use the word um, sort of a marriage-related word in there, and the first one was they said that freedom of religion is more than freedom to worship; it is freedom to live out one's faith in public. So that's that. That's a very vague statement, though, isn't it? I mean, what, what exactly does it mean to live out one's faith? I think that's getting to this um, freedom to practice as opposed to freedom to worship idea. So they're saying that uh, religious freedom includes the freedom to believe and the freedom to practice and carry out that belief. But, of course, as we know, there are times when your freedom to practice needs to be needs to be curtailed if it's contrary well, to other yeah. laws. I mean, you know, Australia has secular law that um, regulates marriage. For example, in some 
so-called faiths, uh, it's legal to for, for one man to have four wives, and we know in Australia that's technically illegal. So should we... Should, should, are these people saying that Muslims should be allowed to live out their faith by having four wives in Australia? Is that what they're saying? Well, they're not, but as Dean said in his submission, that's the hypocrisy of all this. That's, you know, why not? If you're going to claim special privileges in one area, mm. then you, other groups could claim that's that right. privilege. So they're a little bit inconsistent, aren't they? Very I mean, inconsistent. They're re- really, they're, they're asking for religious privilege for Christians, but not necessarily for other religions. Yeah. The, the second one that they talk about that's not necessarily marriage-related is parents should have the right to be notified of and then withdraw their children from <laughs> LGBTIQ sex and gender theory classes. Mm. So, you know, that's the other one that's got them. I don't, I don't know why they have a problem with their children being taught how to strap dildos on, do you? <laughs> <laughs> can be a useful skill. <laughs> and the rest of them are all about marriage. So, for example... People should be free to speak publicly about their religious view of marriage. Um, in the same way, a Muslim printer should not be forced to print copies of the Torah. Wedding service providers should not be forced to participate in a vision of marriage. Religious charities should be allowed to hold their view of man-woman marriage. Preachers should be allowed to place their sermons regarding man-woman marriage. Blah, blah. Religious schools should be allowed to teach their children their view of marriage. People should not be forced into making statements about marriage or gender. Religious schools and organisations should be allowed to positively discriminate in employment of people who adhere to their beliefs on marriage. State and federal anti-discrimination law should be amended, blah, 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 expressing the view that marriage is between a man and woman. Celebrants, and in this case they're talking about marriage celebrants, should be allowed to practise freely. Uh, People should not fear being sacked from their jobs because they express their views on marriage. People should not be coerced under threat of losing their job into resigning from boards of religious organisations that dissent from the state's new definition of marriage. There should be no legal detriment to anyone who expresses the view that marriage is between one man and one woman. It's incredible that this organisation, with all of its people and all of the things that it could say... 12 of the 14 points of their obsession with marriage. And And point number 11, people should not fear being sacked from their jobs because they express their views on marriage, but only if they agree with their views on marriage. If they have a different view on marriage, they, in fact, probably should be sacked. And a religious organisation, on the other hand, should be able to sack somebody. Yes, exactly. If they're an unmarried like if mother. if they're in, a, in an unmarried relationship or pregnant outside of marriage, they should be sacked, basically. Yeah. yeah it's yep. incredible double standard, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, there's news on Lyle Shelton. In case you haven't heard, here it is. Uh, but I do believe that uh, politics needs Christian influence from the inside and uh, political parties need good people from the inside. Uh, but... I want everyone to be very clear that uh, I'm not leaving uh, the battle for the values uh, that you and I hold dear, uh, just simply going to a different part of the battlefield. Uh, Most of all, I want to thank you for your prayers. And uh, I want to really encourage you to continue supporting uh, the organisation into the future. Australia needs ACL now more than ever. Thank you and God bless. Well, thanks very much, Lyle. 
Trevor, so weren't you telling me that prayers don't work the other day? <laughs> well, it's, I'm, I'm happy to hear that they're, they're praying for, for Lyle and uh, what he's up to, so I, I, am, I am happy about that. Here's the thing, though. He's got a replacement, so here's a little bit about his replacement. Uh, Martin Isles, who joins me now, uh, is a graduate of our Lachlan Macquarie Institute. With his legal training, uh, Martin is widely respected for his expertise on religious freedom and he has served with uh, great distinction before a number of parliamentary committees representing ACL. More recently, he's pioneered the Human Rights Law Alliance, which was a legal initiative, or is a legal initiative, of ACL. So the Human Rights Law Alliance... It's a nice hijacking of the term human rights, isn't it? Yes, so we've spoken about them in the past, where... In America, they have um, groups of Christian lawyers all geared up to take cases um, to the Supreme Court and higher courts in the US, you know, fighting for religious freedom. You know, uh, Lyle's replacement, Martin Isles, is, um, is the guy who's been responsible for setting that up in Australia for the ACL. Are you familiar with Martin Isles? No, not until now. You know, he's straight out of the Lyle Shelton playbook. Um, mm-hmm. Would you like to hear some of what mm-hmm. he's got to say? Here's, here's a little bit of Martin Isles. Uh, there's never been more pressure on people of faith and on the church uh, simply for living out our timeless convictions. And therefore, there's never been a more crucial time in history in Australia for the church and for Christian people to continue to engage with law and with politics and with culture. And so with your prayers uh, and with the help of the ACL team, uh, we really do commit to continuing to serve as your voice for values in these areas and continuing to raise the voice for truth and for justice in our courts, in the political realm, uh, in our culture. Uh, And I really look forward to seeing all of you as I travel around or as many of you as possible uh, over the coming weeks and months. I earnestly desire your prayers uh, and with God's help and by God's grace, we can continue to accomplish great things for his kingdom in Australia. Great things for his kingdom in Australia. Can we um, review what he said about the... um Christian church being under attack or something like that? What was oh, it? No. He, he said, Scott, there's uh, never been a time when Christians have been more under attack than they are now. Okay, I'd fair like enough. Yeah, they've been thrown to lions. Exactly. Like to the Coliseum. There's never been a time when the word never has been so <laughs> badly abused. <laughs> We're not going to like him. Uh, He's going to be really annoyed. No, I'm not, I am not going to like him at all because, you know, this whole martyrbation complex that they seem to have, mm. that they're martyrs, that they are standing up for what's right and that's why they're being pushed around and that sort of thing, it's really quite tiresome when they bang on about it at every opportunity they get because it's really bloody annoying, actually. Anyway, mm. I'm sorry. I just had to get that off my chest. just use a rude word? Yeah. yeah. I should have done a language language warning, dear listener. This episode will actually will have some some naughty words in it. So, yeah, at different times. Martyrbation and banging on. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, we can look forward to Martin Isles in the years to come, I'm afraid. I bet he, he would never use a word like martyrbation. No, probably not. No. He's afraid our kids are being taught how to martyrbate. Only in the, only in the context of telling children not to do it, or adults for that matter. Mm. So, yeah. Um, and Lyle, of course, is going to run for parliament, and he's joined Corey Bernardi's Australian Conservatives he's, Party. 
he's not going to run for parliament. He has um, – no, he's uh, – where is it? Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, it had been expected that Shelton would announce plans to stand at the next federal election, but instead Bernardi announced Shelton would become the spokesman for the party outside the parliamentary ranks. That was from The Guardian. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't pick that up. That uh, Okay, from outside. The, but does, doesn't that mean in the meantime, until there is an election? You'd think so. I, well... That was what I was wondering, but then when I read that art, when I read that paragraph, I thought to myself, "Well, he's not going to be doing it. He's not going to run for parliament." Yeah, but none no. of us will be surprised if he um, if he gets onto the oh, Senate ticket. He will put he, he will put his name in the ring. His hat will be thrown in the ring for the Queensland Senate ticket. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. You know, and if he's convinced ten percent of the population to vote for him, well, then he's got a bloody seat down there, doesn't he? Yeah. Queensland, Scott. Why Queensland? Because he's moved back to Toowoomba, which is where he's from. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Scott's old stomping grounds is just a... That's, that's where, I, where I grew up, yeah. yeah. You know, that was where the hotbed of Christianity up there. Yeah. Yeah. Still on politics. You know, I used to think Malcolm Turnbull was just a decent guy and that he was probably trying to do the right thing and just hamstrung by nutbags in his party that he just couldn't, you know, that he... He, he was encumbered by a lot of baggage and a lot of things that were just making it difficult for him mm. to be a truly liberal prime minister. But the more I hear from him, the less I think that way. Are you and feeling <laughs> disillusioned, Trevor? It, it just even more so. Actually, I'm, I was disillusioned. That happened, you know, about a year ago. I'm now, I'm now entering the very worried territory. Despondency, is it? Well, no, the very worried and about to be extremely angry territory. Okay. Yeah. And uh, an article in the Courier-Mail from just the other day. I've got it here. The highlights are Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull goes into the new political year with fresh inspiration from US President Donald Trump who he says deserves full marks for his historic company tax cuts. Mr Turnbull praised the Trump administration's economic agenda. Quote, Those tax cuts he has achieved, boy, look at the impact, Mr Turnbull said. You're seeing billions of dollars coming back into the United States. It's a great achievement getting it through Congress. He said he was inspired by the success of the US tax cuts which had been credited with a forecast upswing in global economic growth. Buoyed by that success, Treasurer Scott Morrison is expected to introduce a second round of corporate tax cuts to Parliament this week to deliver a 25% rate for all businesses. Mr Turnbull said the relationship between the US and Australia was fantastic and as close as it could be. Quite, the Americans see us as an absolutely rock-solid ally. Is anybody else think that that's just appalling? Oh, well, one would hope that he was Donald just Trump's tax cuts. The whole lot. I'd like to think that we're still reasonably close as allies to the US in strategic in should the strategic we be? sense. Yeah, I think we should. What? At what point do we distance ourselves from an ally? At, at what point do we say, you know what? You've got us into a lot of trouble over the years and we're just going to ease ourselves away from you a little bit because hanging around you just gets us into trouble all the time. Mm, look, I think we could have a lot worse friends than the US. 
I tend to agree with you there, Paul, because um, there is no doubt that Australia is Washington's lapdog, but rather Washington's lapdog than Jakarta's or Beijing's. Absolutely. You know, and that is a question that I that we are going to have to face as a nation is what's more important, our economic relationship with China or our security relationship with the US. You know, I mean, we've, we've never been reluctant to criticise our American friends when we think they do something that's um, not right. And, and, we, and we'll continue to do so. But there's still, to me, I'd rather, as Scott said, uh, be America's lapdog than Beijing's lapdog. When it comes to military matters, when, when have we criticised America? Oh, a lot of Australians criticised the, the our government in the Vietnam War. The, the, the government. Well, you know. When? The government did stand up to them over yeah. Vietnam. There was not the Conservative government, but the incoming Labor government did stand up to them over Vietnam and withdrew our troops from Vietnam. It's, it's too long the... ago for me. But between Vietnam <laughs> in the 60s and 2018... Name and instance. Freedom of navigation operations. Where? We have not undertaken any of them in the South China Sea, even though we've been requested to do so by the Americans. But we have supported and we have them s- in principle on that. Militarily, we have supported them in... We, I mean, your statement was that we've stood up to the Americans at different times uh-huh. over Did different things. Did I say things. stood up to well, the Americans? Or, I said we've disagreed to, with the Americans. Yeah, but at a government level, we haven't. Um, I don't know. Paul Keating from time to time used to say that we needed to take a more independent stance um, and he was in government. He, well, he has of late when he's been out of government, mm. but, you know, we've followed America into every conflict around the globe they decide to start. At some point we True need enough. to say, as friends, uh, you've, you're doing the wrong thing here. We're going to just cool our relationship with you. I suppose it's part of the compact we have with the Americans, isn't it? Well, see, this is the point. Like, you think that if we just are good lapdogs, that Donald Trump's going to help us out? Mm-hmm. Like, I really? hope so. <laughs> really? I don't know. But, I mean, I, I think if push the, came the, to the, shove, the, the Americans only, would certainly see us as among their most loyal the allies. The only time we asked them for help for in East Timor, they didn't help. When was that? In East Timor. But it was probably mm. the right decision by them. But the only time we asked for help, they didn't. Dear listener, just coming back from a technical difficulty that we've had with Skype. So um, we've spent about 10 minutes trying to sort that out. And to solve it, we've got Scott on a phone line now. So, Scott, <laughs> you're going to be a little bit scratchy compared to what you might normally okay. be. But uh, prior to that technical difficulty, we were talking about... The US, and I was saying that we need to cool our relationship, and you guys are quite happy with the warm and you're quite happy with our all the way with LBJ relationship with the United no, States. No, I, I am not happy all the way with LBJ, oh, but I on. do think that we, we do have to maintain a reasonable level of engagement with the Americans. Now, the problem that I do have with our current involvement is that we seem to have our militaries have become so intermeshed now that it's going to be impossible for us to stand on the sidelines should America get involved in a scrap that we don't want to be involved in. Now, that I think we should pair that back. I do think that we should extract from the American command numbers of our military forces. I don't have a problem with the US rotating Marines through Darwin and all that sort of stuff. 
I mean, if history shows us anything at all, you have to get Americans killed before you get them involved in a war. <laughs> so I do think that well, it's true, you know. You know, what was it? Three three years into World War One, they lost the Lusitania and they got involved. Yeah. Well, you know, two years into World hang, War Two, hang, hang on, they weren't involved in Vietnam, but they decided they, no, Vietnamese didn't kill any of them, but they decided to head over there. The Afghanistan, well, didn't, they, Afghanistan didn't kill any, but they decided to head over oh, there. Oh, hang on a minute. The, Afga- the Afghanistan, the Afghanistan engagement was entirely justified because that was a government that was refusing to hand over a known terrorist and that sort of thing to them for criminal prosecution, blah, 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 blah. Well, so I do think that I do think that, that was that was a justified Ecuador engagement. hasn't handed over Julian Assange. Do we you know but Julian Assange, what 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 you know what what just, just what because crimes you don't hand over a criminal America can can launch war against you? Come on. Yeah. Look I, I personally think um if, if we're going to um, continue to preserve our, our, our political and social system in more or less as it is, we need powerful friends that have similar political and social systems. And who else is, who else is going to help us out if push comes to shove? And uh, increasingly, China is going to be expansionist. India, more than likely, is going to assert itself more and more in the future. Indonesia, it's only a matter of time before Indonesia increasingly asserts itself in the region. Australia needs, you know, powerful friends with similar social and political values. And as flawed as the United States is, and I'll be the first to say it's extremely flawed, and, you know, their their democratic system has been hopelessly corrupted by the influence of money and business, they're still a lot closer to us in terms of our basic core values than those other ones that I've mentioned. We don't have to worry about Indonesia. No, not for that. They couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag. For the time being. You don't know in the future, Trevor. It's 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 a a long, long, long way They have a lot of people. They have a lot of resources. It's only a matter of time. Give them time and they'll, they'll... They'll assert themselves. I'm sure of it. You know, did you ever? You remember the Iran Contra? Uh, the um, oh, it was it was the there was a guy called Oliver North who was involved I with remember. the Reagan administration, yeah. and he was one of yeah, those, and he um, sold guns to the the, the Contras and the um, yes. Yes. he was an arms for the Americans. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and when he came onto yeah. the scene, he was an ex marine or something like that. Yeah. And the statement about him was that, um, you know, if you were in a scrap where you were backs against the wall and you had to fight your way out of trouble um, against the odds, there would be no better guy to have beside you to have beside you than Oliver North. But the other thing was, if you were in a situation where your backs were to the wall and you had to fight your way out of a diabolical situation, it was probably because Oliver North got you in that position in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the risk of the Americans. Yes. We, we have to have our own independence. Our friends are imperfect, but they're still our friends and we still have to, yeah. you know, cultivate good relations with them. If once For we get once we get twelve subs, how you know how's China going to get troop ships? Do you know how many, subs, land, you know how many subs the Chinese have now? How many? 
I, I think it's in the order of 40 to 50. Right. Um, and they're still, they'll build more, you mm-hmm. know. We might have 12. They'll mm-hmm. have probably 120, mm-hmm. you know. In See, we need to do it through diplomacy. So we need to have the, the Chinese elite owning enough property down here oh, that great. they don't want the Chinese government to take it over because oh, it's their little haven. Yeah, that would be perfect. So, which is what we're doing. <laughs> It's this sort of strategy that yeah. we need. Look, I, I don't want to sound like I don't like Chinese people. I do. Yeah. I, you know, I, I quite like Chinese people, a lot of the ones I've met. But it's the Chinese government that worries me. It's, mm. a, it's an autocratic dictatorship and I don't trust them. I, I simply don't trust the Americans to help out. But, but getting back to this article, yeah. the thing in it that wasn't so much concerning me in the article was the tax cuts. Like, Turnbull is determined to bring in these corporate tax cuts. Scott, you got an opinion about, you know, further tax oh, cuts? He won't, he, won't, he won't succeed. There's, there's no doubt about that. The, the tax cuts will fail in the Senate. He's not going to succeed in getting them through. And that is fine by me because, you know, I agreed with the next article, nine reasons why the case for a company tax cuts for big business has collapsed. You know, you only have to read the first one that you realise to yourself, well, that's a hell of a lot of money that we're planning on forsaking. And when you go further down into it, it's talking about the... Uh, well, we'll tell the dear listener. The very first one yeah, says sorry. that the extra tax, tax cuts would cost $65 billion. And that's just money that we will not have for schools and hospitals and services. Mm. If you take tax away, then- you've got to stop spending on stuff. Then you've got number nine down here. It's not even worth it. Even the government's own economic modelling shows that the benefits are, are tiny and 20 to 30 years away. By then, we'll have lost over $100 billion that could have been spent on schools, hospitals and government services. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is, a very, it is a very simplistic thing to say, you know, $65 billion would be better off being spent in hospitals and schools and that sort of stuff. But they're dead right. They are right that you should be spending your money in schools and hospitals. Plus, none of these multinationals pay 30% anyway. They, they pay nothing. Almost. And yeah. what we would be doing is giving a tax break to those local big companies who can't move offshore, like the four banks. So the big four banks would get an extra $7.4 billion mm. And by the end of the uh, the ten years, when it's up and running properly, by two thousand and twenty five, twenty six, the banks will be getting three point two billion dollars every year. And what? for what? And, and for what, what benefit does the Australian nation get from that? They're, they're not going to open more branches with more tellers and employ more people. No, it's no. not how it no, works. They're, they're, they're not. And, you know, that is, it's a ridiculous argument that Turnbull still sticks to that's saying it's going to lead to greater employment. It's not going to lead to greater employment. It's a huge you know, there assumption, was, isn't it? It's just wrong. There, there, was an, there was an article, it was in the, the same article, yeah. a Coles and Woolies going to hire more checkout staff if they pay less company tax. You know, if they're not going to because they have started investing in self-service checkouts and that sort of stuff. Why? Because yeah. it doesn't cost you anything. You've got six or seven of those things being supervised by one member of staff. You know, now mm-hmm. that is an incredible cost saving for those companies. Mm-hmm. And I don't begrudge them their cost savings. They've got to be able to put downward pressure on their costs. But, you know, to then hand over, then hand over a, a corporate tax cut to them? No. I don't think so. Here's another one um, that's 
Interesting. Now, we've got the situation where um, discrimination sort of laws and stuff like that. People have guide dogs, for example. Should 12th man, a person with a guide dog, be allowed to take their dog onto an aeroplane? I would have thought it's, it's a reasonable thing to expect. Scott? I would have thought so, yeah. I wouldn't have a problem with that. Yep. Somebody with a disability and the animal helps them out and mm. seems like a reasonable thing to do. Otherwise, how yeah, are they exactly. going to travel? In, indeed, how are they going to because travel? Because the dogs are, you know, individually trained to, yes. to, to serve each uh, person, each um, sight-impaired person, aren't they? Yes. Um, you can't just sort of get on the plane, fly to another capital city, get off the plane and hire a guide dog. Yes. Um, what's also happened, though, is some people have emotional problems as well, oh. nervous problems, and they have assistance animals. So some people are comforted by their animals. So like war veterans. If we're so. going to have laws that you know, help people out for physical difficulties, then it would make sense that mm. people with a mental health anxiety issue who can't travel without their comfort dog should be allowed to What if it isn't a dog? What if it's travel? a parrot <laughs> or a cat? Well, you know? well, well, if it is a cat, wouldn't that, would that be okay? Cats you know, are a little bit less, uh, if you like, suitable for... Um, companion animals in public transport, I would have thought. Well, anyway, in America, people have been taking advantage of this situation. So people have been wanting to take their pets with them as they travel around and they've discovered this loophole in the system that allows them to take a, a comfort pet. And it's very easy just to get a doctor to sign off to say, Oh yeah, you know, Joe Blow suffers from anxiety and, and needs, he needs his parrot. needs his pet with them. So all manner of animals have been getting on because it's cheaper then, rather than you know putting the animal in a pet cage. And um, anyway, this has all reached um, like a Monty Python sort of scenario now because um, one woman went to the airport with her pet peacock. <laughs> Dexter. Oh, my goodness. Dexter the pet peacock. This is dead serious. That's a very large peacock. Oh, God. And the article I've got uh, titled, It's Time to End the Scam of Flying Pets, and it's a picture of uh, it's clearly inside an airport with some uh, a baggage trolley and a peacock sitting on it. And oh, this I woman seriously thought that she could take her pet peacock onto the plane with her as her comfort <laughs> animal. Oh, God. Dexter. Yeah. It's an interesting photo too because the peacock is is perched uh, quite close to the camera on, on a, uh, a trolley, yes. an airport luggage trolley. Yes. But it, it looks, if you don't look carefully, it looks as if the peacock is about the size of an emu, doesn't it, standing beside the, uh, the check-in booth? Look, it's a fine-looking peacock, I have to say. But, uh, but anyway, that's You're a bit what... partial to peacocks, are you? Not especially. Uh, this just seems a fine example of a peacock. No doubt it's well looked after. <laughs> But uh, that's what happens when freedoms are taken to their extreme. Mm. So that's Dexter the Peacock. I might put that picture on as from the episode picture. Is this an, an, an analogy for our Christian friends and their uh, freedoms? Well, it is. It just goes to show you've got to put a limit on some things and the, you know, uh, 
freedoms aren't absolute and you've got to always measure them against other people's mm. comfort and convenience. Particularly and, in public transport, of course. Yeah, I'm sure being on a plane with somebody's pet peacock would not be a pleasant experience for everybody else on the plane. Do you remember the story about the guy who claimed to be a humanist, was seeking asylum, they questioned him of his knowledge of humanism and he wasn't able to identify uh, Plato and Socrates and they said, well, clearly not a humanist, can't stay. Of course, he was from Pakistan and I don't know uh, which sort of historical, philosophical figures are mentioned in school in Pakistan, but... It's maybe not too surprising if Plato and Socrates don't get too much of a mention. Well, I've got a link to an article here where 120 leading philosophers signed a joint letter to Home Secretary Amber Rudd calling for them to reconsider because they said that um, the nomination of Plato and Aristotle as humanists has no scholarly basis. Um, Both Plato and Aristotle presented arguments in favour of a divine creator, Mm. whereas central to humanist thinking is the rejection of religious belief. So under one interpretation of humanism, um, I think I might have mentioned Socrates before, but it was Plato and Aristotle. Oh, okay. Yeah. So are you familiar with Socrates, Plato and Aristotle? Just vaguely, I have to admit. Right. Are you? Uh, I don't know anything about them, so I'm a philistine. Dear listener, time for a 101 on on Greek (laughs) philosophers. This is from my book, The Quest for Moral Compass, by Ken and Malik, one of your favourites. And I remember saying to you, 12th man, at least 18 months ago, that you should buy this book. Oh, I haven't. Oh, you've got it. You haven't read it yet. I've had it for ages, but I haven't Ah. finished. I started reading it, but, you know, as is... As is my way, I uh, you know I buy so many that I get started yeah. on one, and then another one arrives, and I start on it, and I um, <laughs> I don't tend to finish any of them. Yeah. So Socrates, he was the first of the three, and uh, he was its first saint. It was well, he was um, the founding father of Western philosophy, considered its first saint and its first martyr, because. He was sentenced to death for being impious mm. and ordered to drink hemlock poison. Yeah. He refused to conform. Yes. So he was very unlike you, Fist. Yeah. So he was charged with, with being godless, for being impious okay. and for being sort of subversive. And the story of, of Euthyphro, have you heard that one? So... Uh, So Socrates is charged with not being godly enough and he hears about this guy, Euthyphro, who's like a prosecutor and Euthyphro is actually prosecuting his own father for murder and seeking the death penalty for his own father. He sounds like a very principled man. Well, that's what he said. Euthyphro said, I am a principled man, I'm a man of God, you know, and... Socrates says, well, I need to be your pupil because I've been charged with, with being impious and you're clearly a very pious man. I need to learn from you. So um, tell me, what does it mean to be pious, to be godly? And Euthyphro said, well, you know, doing what I'm doing right now, prosecuting my father despite him being my father. And Socrates said, well, that doesn't... You know, this doesn't have a general applicability. Like, 
what's a rule that I can apply as to what's sort of godly and what isn't godly? And um, Euthyphro proposed a definition. He said, what is dear to the gods is pious, what is not is impious. But Socrates says, well, that can't be right because we all know that the gods are in a state of discord and some gods see certain actions as pious while others look to different actions. He said there was a dispute amongst the gods. Socrates sounds like an argumentative bugger, doesn't he? He does. But he said something even more important. So he said, um, is something pious, as in God, is something um, good because it's loved by the gods or is it good because it's inherently good and the gods recognise it as as inherently good? And if you say it's good because the gods say it's good, then that's unacceptable because how can something just be, you know, are the gods so capricious that just anything is good just because they say it's good? Like, that doesn't make sense. He said the answer must be that something is good and the gods recognise it as being good and therefore goodness is independent of gods, which is a sort of a deep sort of philosophical sort of uh, it does sound uh, humanistic, intersection to, to get say, through. Yeah, it? yeah. It's the idea that, you know, if, if something is inherently good, then that's what you do anyway. Well, that's the principle you follow regardless of whether it's um, supported by um, religious ethics or not. Hmm. So that was um, the key sort of Euthyphro sort of dilemma that Socrates came across. And just on Plato, he came out with... He, he basically thought that mankind's soul had three different parts, that there was the appetitive, the spiritive, and the rational parts, and that that sort of matched up with uh, labourers, soldiers, and rulers. So... Common people, driven by base desires. You've got soldiers who have a yearning for honour and you've got rulers who look for reason. And in Plato's mind, the ideal society was an aristocracy Mm. because it was governed by the ruling class who were relying on rational thought. The next best would be a military dictatorship, sort of a Sparta-type thing. If neither an aristocracy nor the sort of military dictatorship was possible, then the next best was an oligarchy. And then fourth in the line was a democracy, a society ruled by people dominated by lowly appetites for food, drink, sex and pleasure. <laughs> and the only thing worse than a democracy, in Plato's view, was uh, tyranny. <laughs> there you go. Yes. So he doesn't sound like a, a much of a humanist, does he? Does he? Well, well. It's a, it's a broad church, humanism. But anyway, just in case the dear listener is one day seeking asylum in the UK and is quickly questioned on at least Socrates and Plato... Study the first few pages of uh, Kenan Malik's book. You'll, you'll have something to say. Did I give you the article about America? Language warning, you dear listener. Um, the, the title of the article is How did a nice country like America end up being governed by a big bunch of assholes?" It's a fair description. Yes, it is a nice country um, on the whole, I think. You know, most Americans are decent people and a lot of them are 
very creative. Uh, I think we have a lot to thank our American friends for uh, all in all. But, yeah, uh, of, of, of late they've been definitely um, governed by a big bunch of assholes, haven't they? Well, I'll just read mm-hmm. uh, some highlights from the article. It's a little bit reminiscent of that article about Flavie Jockey Peterson where it really tears into people. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so this one is that the, 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 the targets are still alive. Yeah. So, so this is by Evert Vassilias and it says, um, how come we've got a president who is not only the biggest arsehole of all presidents ever but also the biggest arsehole among all current world leaders, the biggest arsehole among all current business leaders, the biggest asshole among all rich New Yorkers, the biggest asshole among all assholes from Queens, the biggest asshole sitting on any gold toilet, and maybe the biggest asshole among all contemporary members of the human race, with the possible exception of Ted Cruz. <laughs> and he lists the sort of elites of the country, the president, his cabinet, Congress, Supreme Court, he's claiming they're all assholes. And if our government truly represents us, there can only be one conclusion we are a nation of assholes, or if we are not a nation of assholes, then we are a nation of suckers, which may be worse. He goes on as to various um, bits and pieces about it, which I'll probably skip through. In the end, he said, perhaps the sanest American who ever lived, um, H.L. Mencken? Yes, he, wrote, he was a great, great wrote, mind and great writer. Wrote this thing back in 1920. As democracy is perfected, the office of president represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. On some great and glorious day, the plain folk of the land will reach their heart's desire at last and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. And that was in (laughs) 1920. You've come across some quotations from Mencken before, haven't you? That one sounds familiar. Oh, you come across quite a lot if you hang out with um, humanists and atheists on the internet. They will often quote Mencken. Right. He's very popular with my American friends who are atheists. Right. Mm. And he, he was a terrific writer and prolific. And he was uh, definitely not your run-of-the-mill American conformist. Yeah. Mm. Well, maybe he had read some Plato. I mean, Plato had democracy fourth on the list, society ruled by people dominated by lowly appetites for food, drink, sex and pleasure. It's a society without order or discipline. Mm. No, Mencken was definitely a terrific guy. Mm. So that was that. And, and he had, a, had an incredible insight into the American political system, actually. Mm. You know, he saw the hypocrisy and the... You know, he saw a lot of things that were wrong with the American political system and with conventional society. Did you see the State of the Union address? I didn't. Did you? Scott, you would have seen it. I this. saw parts of it, yeah. It was, um, it was, again, Trump hasn't got out of campaign mode, was it? You know, he was just uh, over there thumping the drum. Yeah, well, that and a few other things have signalled uh, an important shift in American politics, Torfman Man and Scott, because in the lead-up to the election and after the election, there were significant numbers of Republicans who just could not stand Trump and didn't want, didn't want a bar of anything to do with him. But the numbers who were standing and cheering and clapping and just carrying on in the State of the Union 
was worrying. And there's also this Nunes memo has come out which purports to put into question the FBI Russian investigation, but it doesn't. And the Republican you know, hierarchy are happily promoting that and happy to promote the idea that the investigation is wrong and biased and should be stopped and it's all um, an evil sort of conspiracy against the Trump. And that's, again, a really dangerous area they've gone into and time's dragging on in this podcast so I won't go into it in detail but, you know, in the days of Nixon, when Nixon was trying to get rid of his FBI director, he would never have dreamt of doing it as openly and discussing it as boldly as what Trump is sort of doing. And the, yeah, exactly. the, the, the Congress would not have gone along with it. They would have said does no. Word, does the word brazen come to mind? Yeah, and just overt and open. So Nixon was trying to do it surreptitiously because there's no way he could have said the sorts of things openly that Trump is doing. And there's no way that the Republican Party would have capitulated. So, they, you know, this, the idea that the Russians have actually interfered with a US election and... And got away with it. And got away with it. And that, that a party, you know, politicians in charge would just be happy for that to be swept under the carpet and not examined is frightening. You've got to hand it to Trump, though. You know, his State of the Union address has never been received with so much rapturous applause and congratulations, hasn't it? That's what he would say anyway. That's what he would say. Are you serious? Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) I was just trying to imagine how Donald would describe it. Yeah. So anyway, series of articles there about... um, about the Donald. Dear listener, there's um, Australian Podcast Awards are on and there's a link on the Facebook, oh, on the website that you can go. Uh, actually, on the, it's on the Facebook page and there'll be a link on this show notes as, on these show notes as well where you can go and you can vote for the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove as your favourite podcast. It will take a little bit of effort. It's just not ticking a box and done because you have to register and then they email you back to make sure that you're a real person and then uh, then your vote is accepted. So that's good. It stops people from Worth doing cheating. Yeah. Worth so doing. please um, click on the link and spend two minutes and go through the exercise and give us a vote. That would be nice. Uh, patrons, thank you, because it's been a while since we've gone through them all. Thank you, Ayame. Thank you, Jane. Caitlin, Tony, Steve, Brett, Sean, Alex, Alison, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John, Craig and Janelle. Thank you very much. And did I mention a Ken in there as well? Thanks for being a patron and much appreciated. Thank you very much to our patrons. We really appreciate it. Mm. Actually, we got a nice um, testimonial from somebody called Algie on iTunes, put in a testimonial, said... A provocative and informative discussion of current affairs at the intersection of religion and politics. The perfect antidote to religious privilege and snowflake culture. Best listened to at one and a half speed. That's an interesting (laughs) suggestion. Is he implying that we're a little bit slow? 
yeah, I think he's saying that we could speak faster. A little faster. bit too relaxed. Yeah, I think that's what he's saying. So, uh, so thank you for the um, testimonial algae. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> that was that. And thank you for Ken who um, pointed out that our donation link had gone down and he was wanting to make a donation and prompted me to fix that up. So we did. Thank you for that. Dear listener, during the podcast we had an interesting discussion about private health insurance and Medicare and the pros and cons of private health insurance and what should be done about it. But unfortunately, with Scott on the telephone, a buzz started to happen in the recording, which just got progressively worse and worse. So I've decided to cut that out from the podcast. And just to make up a little bit of time, I'm going to add in now um, a little segment from episode... 61, which is one of my favourites, where I gave a bit of an explanation of the life of Muhammad. So a little bit of a replay of that, and then we'll finish up. Thanks. Scott, uh, you know, this week we're a little bit short on um, news articles, so I thought that I would... I mean, we've grown up Christians, so we're quite familiar, and being in our... Uh, culture, we're quite familiar with Christian Bible stories, you know, that we've just come across through our either through formal teaching at school or just uh, osmosis through mm-hmm. um, popular culture, movies or whatever. But there's lots of the uh, Islamic faith that many people would not know anything about. And I thought this is an opportune time. I have been finished reading, well, I finished reading. Um, a book called Muhammad and the Unbelievers, The Sira, a political biography by a guy called Bill Warner. And um, Bill Warner, um, American guy, uh, says that uh, Islam is basically defined by uh, the words of Allah in the Quran and the words and actions of Muhammad in the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A. And the Sunnah of Muhammad is found in two texts. You've got the Sirah, which is his biography, and you've got the Hadith, which are traditions or stories about what Muhammad did or said. So this particular book I've got is the Sirah, which is his biography, talks about his life. And um, and so essentially... Where, in terms of Islamic faith, uh, it's not all about the Quran. It, it is as much about the Sunnah as it is about the Quran, because Muhammad was the perfect version of what it means to be a Muslim, and everything he did was perfect. So, um, so what this guy says is, when you're wanting to argue about what do um, Muslims believe in, it's actually much easier to talk about um, the Sunnah being either the biography of Muhammad in the Sirah or the Hadith being the stories about uh, um, uh, and traditions about what he did as being much easier way of explaining what Muslims believe in. So, so that's sort of point A of well, the introduction, if you like. And, uh, and so... Um, it's actually 
like this Sirah, this biography, is 20 times as long as the Gospel of Matthew. So we know a lot more about Muhammad than we do about Jesus. There's a lot of stuff in there. Um, a few other introductory bits is that if you were to just pick up an English version of, uh, well, there's two sources or two biographies. Uh, the most respected sources are one by Ishak and one by Al-Tabari. And uh, basically, um, they're hard to read documents because there's just a lot of guff in there. So what he's done is he's taken out the poetry and he's taken out, like there'll be certain pages, Scott, where just giving, um, it'll just be lists of names that go on for pages and pages. And, and just throughout the text, one person's name could be six lines long and he just shortens it to just, you know, a shortened version of that. Um, lots of poetry, lots of, uh, stuff that you don't need so he's sort of condensed it all down into a much more readable format but if anybody wants to question any of what he's said he's got references to the original work of Ishak or of uh, of Al-Tabari so as I'm reading some of this stuff Scott I could say um, I might give one of these Stories that uh, Muhammad was raised by Abu Talib, his uncle. And I could say, well, that's Ishak, page 115. And then people could actually look at Ishak, page 115, and say whether it does say that or not. So, well referenced. And so when you, uh, if you do end up, dear listener, getting a copy of this book, you can make statements about Muhammad and say, well, it says so in Ishak, page blah, blah, blah. So I like that side of it. Um... So I'm just going to have a bit of a crack here, Scott, and uh, feel free to interrupt at any point. Um, okay. At just a little background of of Muhammad, and to give people um, a bit of an idea of um, of who he was. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, he was still in his mother's womb when his father died, uh, and when he was five, his mother died. Uh, he was orphaned for the third time when his grandfather died. So then he was looked after by his uncle, Abu Talib. I mean, this goes to show in that day and age, Scott, people were dying left, right and centre. Yeah, um, uh, it was a very tribal society at the time, and he was from a tribe of the Quraysh uh, Q-U-R-A-Y-S-H which were kind of like the priestly tribe of Mecca um, so that was the sort of tribe that he was associated with and uh, he ended up um, he was hired by his distant cousin the wealthy widow Khadija uh, to act as her trading agent and she proposed marriage to him Really? Hmm. They had six children. Two sons died in childhood. Uh, four daughters lived to adulthood. I think only one of them uh, survived to provide any children. But uh, 
hold hold back on that thought. Just not quite sure on that one. But six children, two sons died in childhood, four daughters lived to adulthood. So his employer, a wealthy widow, uh, actually proposed to him. Um, so he uh, leads a pretty ordinary life until the age of 40 when he began to have visions and to hear voices. That was when he started. Like, it's very late in life, particularly for somebody, you know, as we know, people are dying left, right and centre there, and, uh, you know, 40 is getting on. Um, <laughs> it was getting on. It makes me wonder if it was uh, if the uh, visions and that sort of stuff were some sort of early psychosis that was set in. <laughs> early dementia, maybe. Yeah, early dementia, yeah. Mm. He hated poets and the insane and he was really upset because he thought he was becoming insane or something like that um and he went to sort of kill himself but got more visions saying don't kill yourself and uh he went back to his wife and he told her he was either crazy or a poet and she said that he was neither of those things and perhaps the vision was true um so she was the first convert, and he's getting visions from the angel uh, Gabriel and uh, telling him about prayer and stuff like that. And he, you know, becomes revealed to him that he starts his new religion, which he calls Islam, which means submission. And he gets uh, just a handful of, of, um, of followers. He's in Mecca at this time. And... Um, uh, hanging around now, a few episodes ago, the twelfth man um, talked about the the Kaaba, um, which was that black, um, all that stone sort of building that they all um, walk around and. Um, oh yeah, in and, the, um, and for the uh, for the Hajj, yeah. Yes, so that was you know there at that time, and it was a central place for Muhammad. He spent a lot of time around that. Um, anyway. Um, he's, you know, he's quite the orator and he, he speaks quite good poetry and he's obviously filled with a zeal and is convincing and persuasive, but also just plain crazy. Mm. And um, uh, uh, this is from Ishak, page 183. Muhammad continued to preach the glory of Allah and condemn the Quraysh religion, which was his original tribal sort of religion. He told them their way of life was stupid and insulted their ancestors, cursed their gods, mocked their religion and divided the community, setting one tribesman against another. The Quraysh felt that this was all beyond bearing. Tolerance had always been their way. Many clans, many gods, many religions. Another religion was fine. Why did Muhammad demean the others? Now, this is in Muhammad's own biography at page 183 of Ishak. Yeah. It's a, uh, there's various other passages that I can't read, but there's a very strong theme where when he's originally just proclaiming his new religion, people are like, okay, believe what you like. Like, there's heaps of religions here. That's fine. But he had to go insulting and, and demonising the other ones, and that's when they had a problem. Mm. Gathers a few more followers... Um, and uh, let me just... It's a pity they didn't rub him out early on, isn't it? It is a real pity. It is indeed. <laughs> um, at one point, some of his followers um, went to Ethiopia. And uh, so some Christian... Uh, so 
and some Christians from Ethiopia came back to Mecca to try and you know find out who this Muhammad guy was that these these guys were talking about. So again, Ishak, page two hundred fifty nine. Some Christians came from Ethiopia. Uh, to see Muhammad in Mecca. After extended conversations, they decided to accept Islam. Abu Jal of the Quraysh said to them, quote, What a wretched group you are. Your people sent you here to get information. And what do you do? You go and renounce your religion and believe everything Muhammad tells you? What a stupid <laughs> bunch you are. <laughs> they gave him a pleasant reply and they went back to Ethiopia. Like this, this is from the biography of the official biography of Muhammad, page two hundred and fifty nine. Like, well said, uh, well said. Okay, but uh, the good story that I'll just I'll, I'll spend a bit of time with before we finish up was um, the night journey. Scott, you might have heard a little bit about this. Uh, starts at Ishak, page two hundred and sixty four. Um, basically, Muhammad said that uh, one night as he lay sleeping, an angel nudged him with his foot. He awoke, saw nothing, went back to sleep. This happened again, happened again, blah, blah. Eventually, Gabriel took his arm. They went out the door, and before them, Scott, was a white animal. Half mule and half donkey, with wings on its feet, so it could move to the horizon at one step. So okay, yep. I've got an issue already, Scott. Forget about um, you know having wings. A half mule and half donkey. Now, Scott, a mule is a cross between a donkey, donkey and a horse, and a horse, and it's sterile. Yeah. So you can't cross a mule then with a donkey. So I reckon. You know, this book is wrong in the first place because, well, being half mule really meant it was one quarter... Uh, I reckon it was three-quarter donkey and one-quarter horse with wings, if it was anything. Because <laughs> if a mule is half donkey and half horse, then... Then this white animal, which was half mule and half donkey, had to be three quarter donkey and one quarter horse. That would have been a far better explanation. One little explanation you are (laughs) overlooking here, and that is that he was psychotic at the time and was imagining this. There is that too. But, you know, (laughs) it's important that we explore all possibilities here. So, um, anyway, this white animal uh, had wings. So Gabriel put Muhammad on the white animal and off they went to Jerusalem, the site of the temple. And guess who was at Jerusalem, Uh, Scott? No idea. (laughs) We're up to um, Ishak, page 264 here. Uh, There at the temple was Jesus, Abraham, Moses and various prophets from Christian and Jewish scripture. And uh, they decided to have a prayer. Guess you know, you've got Jesus, Abraham, Moses, Gabriel, and Muhammad. Uh, guess who led them in the prayer? Muhammad did. Oh, Scott, well done. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that in Muhammad's biography that he describes that uh, he led them in prayer. 
So uh, hang on a minute. He was in Mecca when this was happening. I oh, know he's travelled from Mecca on the on the half mule, half donkey, almost instantaneously uh, to, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah, right, because okay. this flying creature can just travel uh, almost immediately. So it's night time, but he's made this incredible journey in a matter of just moments. Right. Okay. So he's made it to Jerusalem. He's met up with Jesus, Abraham, Moses, and uh, prophets. And he's kicked off where he's led them in prayer. Uh, Gabriel brought Muhammad two bowls, one filled with wine and the other with milk. Muhammad took the one with milk and drank it. That was the right choice. So, um, next paragraph, or next page, uh, 265 in Ishak's biography, when Muhammad told this story at the Kabar, the Quraysh hooted at the absurdity of it. And some of the Muslims found it too hard to believe and left Islam. <laughs> Back in the 700s, there were, there were Muslims smart enough to say, what a load of nonsense, and walked yeah. out of him at that point. It's just a uh, real pity that not all of them said, this is garbage, I'm yeah. out. Yeah. But the story doesn't end there, Scott. Um, so, uh, so they're there, they finish the prayers... And Muhammad reports that Abraham looks exactly like Muhammad. Uh, Ruddy-faced, tall and thin with curly hair, whereas Jesus was light-skinned with reddish complexion, freckles and lank hair. Um, after the prayers, Gabriel gets a, a very nice ladder. Uh, Muhammad and Gabriel climb the ladder until they reach the gates of heaven. Uh, so when they're there, um, they first of all uh, go through various levels of heaven. So at the lowest level uh, was a man watching the spirits pass by, sometimes approving, sometimes disapproving. Um, this was Adam. He was reviewing the spirits. Um, Ishak, page 269. Muhammad saw men with lips like camels. In their hands were flaming hot coals. They would shove the coals into their mouths and the burning coals came out of their rectums. <laughs> <laughs> These were those who had stolen the wealth of orphans. Uh, then he saw women hanging by their breasts. These women had birthed bastards while married. Muhammad said, Allah hates women who birth bastards. So, I mean, that's, that's the first level of heaven. Uh, Muhammad was then taken up to the second level where he saw Jesus. Uh, in the third level, he saw Joseph, son of Jacob. In the fourth, he saw Idris. Uh, in the sixth, a dark man with a hooked nose. This was Moses. Um, and in the seventh heaven... Uh, was a man sitting on a throne in front of a mansion. Uh, this man on the throne looked just like Muhammad, but was in fact Abraham. Uh, now, Muhammad, uh, Abraham took Muhammad into paradise, where there was a beautiful woman with red lips. Muhammad asked whom she belonged, to whom she belonged, for she was very attractive to him. She was Zainab, the wife of his adopted son, Zaid. You've got to hand it to Muhammad. I mean, he's hopped on a winged beast 
gone all the way to Jerusalem, led the great prophets in prayer, climbed a ladder. He's gone through six stages of heaven. He gets to the seventh heaven, sees a good-looking girl and says, well, who's that? Like, I'm I'm a bit quite keen on her. Like, he's got an eye for the girls all the time. He he does have an eye for the girls all the time, you know. Mm. It's... um there was no mention of, of a dozen virgins, though. No, not in this section. Uh, that will no. be in... You know, perhaps that's in the Quran. Uh, it, it wasn't... No, that wasn't really referred to in his biography. So it might be in the Quran or in the Hadith, um, but right, not okay. in this. Yeah. So um, we're coming to the conclusion of it here, but um, when he got to the seventh heaven... I've heard that expression, seventh heaven, before, but I never thought about it. It must be re- referring to the seventh heaven of Muhammad. You've heard of Seventh Heaven, have you? Yeah, I've heard of Seventh Heaven, but it was only ever, well, it was always around the Christian yeah. Christian yeah. tradition saying that the Seventh Heaven, that sort of stuff, but I couldn't tell you what it meant. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, um, so he gets there. Um, uh, Allah gave, so he gets to Seventh Heaven, and um, Allah gave him the duty of 50 prayers a day, Scott. So Allah said, you need to do, you and your followers need to do 50 prayers a day. 50 so, a day? Yes. Now, when so he returned... what they do the five, uh, is it the four or five prayers they do a day? Well, here's the explanation, Scott. Okay. So Allah says to, to Muhammad, right, Muhammad, you and your followers, if you want to be good Muslims, uh, you need to do 50 prayers a day. So... When he returned and he passed Moses, so that would be back in sixth heaven, Moses asked Muhammad how many prayers Allah had given him. When Moses heard that it was 50, he said, Prayer is a weighty matter and your people are weak. Go back and ask your Lord to reduce the number for you and your community. Muhammad went back and got the number reduced to 40. When he passed Moses, the same conversation passed. This repeated until Allah reduced the number to five. (laughs) (laughs) Moses tried to get Muhammad to go back and get the number reduced even further, but Muhammad felt ashamed to ask for less. He's haggled. Muhammad, on behalf of his people, has haggled the number of prayers to say per day uh, on the advice of... From 50 down to 5. On the advice of Moses. This is in Ishak, page 271, dear listener. So, oh, it's incredible, isn't it? You know what I find incredible about this, though, is that, you know, you and I are coming at this completely stone cold, knowing Mm. nothing about it. Mm. So we can sit here and say, this is ridiculous. Mm. I just wonder, you know, are kids raised with this all their lives so that they've got no choice but to believe it? Or, you know, how do they, how does their cynical mind, not their cynical mind, but how does their, um, oh, what's the word I'm groping for? You know what I'm trying to say, don't you? How, how do they apply critical thinking to it? Or is yeah, that exactly. Or, yeah. Well, when you're brainwashed. Like, I've got all the sympathy in the world for the kids who are brainwashed, and and it's... And the you know the adults who were brainwashed as kids. I'm really, 
unsympathetic for the likes of... I think Walid Ali's wife was a late convert to Islam. Like, she converted at 19 or 20 or something. And I just think, yeah. for goodness sake, you were an adult. Did you... Re- you know, if you are a follower of Islam, you you have to believe all this garbage. I mean... Exactly. Muhammad was the perfect... Uh, he was perfection... But we haven't even begun, Scott, on the on the warlike atrocities that he then commits onto the non-believers in Mecca and Medina, uh, and, and what goes on there. But you know, if your religion is based around this guy, you've only got to scratch the surface of his own biography to go. This is completely bonkers. Yeah, as an educated Western person, that you could for an instant. I mean, 700 years ago, the Quares tribe was saying to the Ethiopians, what sort of people are you? You've been sent here to investigate and you've swallowed everything you've said, you stupid idiots. Like, yeah, exactly. Just, so, uh, it's frustrating. So, um, it but anyway, I thought yeah. uh, that's interesting. So, in the coming weeks, we'll, um, uh, dear listener, um, help you with a little ride along the life of Muhammad. And it it's I mean, it starts off comical, but it gets pretty darn <laughs> ugly as Very we go quickly. Along. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, um, so there you go. All right, Scott. Until next week. Um, Thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye now. Bye, everyone. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, 
let people know. Thanks.